the number 70 in the Talmud of names of God came from the fact that they, they, they read this as a secret meaning of the Shema. Since the Shema has come down to us from thousands of years now as kind of the central prayer of, of belief, of affirmation, of, of uh, belief in, in one God, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, you know, that God is one. The rabbis, the sages of the Talmud, who lived in over 500-year period, but they lived in, in different periods and in different locations between Israel and Babylonia and other places where there were lots of competing uh, images of God and stories about God. And, you know, there was Zoroastrianism where you have uh, two gods, essentially a good God and a bad God, and, and multiple gods. We had idolatry. And, you know, when you read the Torah, the the Torah is filled with anti-idolatry messages. Um, and there's lots of messages in the Torah from God through Moses of telling people that the Israelites, that whatever they believe shouldn't be what their neighbors believe. <laughs> whatever they do shouldn't be what their neighbors do. You know, so don't, don't act like the Canaanites and don't act like the Jebusites and don't act like the Hittites and don't like, act like all the other ites that are out there that you're going to encounter because you're, you have to be a unique people. So that's part of one of the underlying themes of the entire Torah and of this relationship that in the Torah God has with the Jewish people, with the Israelite, the children of Israel is, you know, we're going to have this special relationship and therefore don't run around worshiping other gods. So the rabbis wrestled with all these differing notions of divinity and of, of godliness and of, of uh, and names of God that were all over the Middle East. And they looked at the Shema and they said, you see, the Shema is a secret kind of hidden message of the Shema is that God is one, even though people may use different names to call God. That doesn't mean God is many different things. It just means we use different names. And the way they figured that out was they took the word Shema, which we know in Hebrew is the word that means listen, Shema Israel, listen Israel. And they broke it down into two words, Shem, which means name in Hebrew, and Ayin, because there's only three letters in the word Shema, Shin, Mem, Ayin. So they said, Shema is Shem Ayin, and Ayin is the Hebrew letter that stands for 70. So they said, ah, this is secretly telling us there are 70 names of God. And let me see what this is. I want this to be gallery. There we go. Yeah, I like the gallery view. <clears throat> then I can see more people. So anyway, that's where 70 came from. So Joyce, yes, and there are other places where, uh, in fact, in, in Jewish mystical tradition, which I think I'll talk about next time, in case you're here in, where are we, November? In case you're here for the December version, we'll talk about some of the mystical issues of God's names. In Jewish mysticism, they talk about 72 names because, you know, they're mystics, so they got to have more. So there's 72 names of God in, in the Jewish mystical tradition. But in the, in the traditional <clears throat> sages of the Talmud tradition, they use the Shema as this... Uh, this kind of secret message that there are 70 names for God. So what I wrote up was, here are the sort of traditional 70 names for God. So since I'm already into this class, 
I, uh, we like to begin with blessings, so I'm going to begin with a, a blessing. And the traditional blessing <clears throat> me, that we use for for Torah study is Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotah V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah, which is, Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and commands us to occupy ourselves with words of Torah. Since we're talking about the 70 names of God, it's kind of interesting that we start with that blessing because, as most of you know, that probably all of you know, Jewish tradition is filled with blessings. In fact, the Talmud says we're supposed to say a hundred blessings every day. Every day is supposed to be a gigantic blessing treasure hunt. You're supposed to spend your days looking for things to say blessings about. If you were a traditional Jew, those blessings would begin, Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. That's the short version. Like if it's uh, it's Shabbat and you're blessing the wine, you'd go, Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei, Periagafen, right? That's the short version. Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, something. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, something. Hamotzi Lechem in Arts, thanks for bread from the earth, or fruit of the vine, or whatever. And then there's the longer version, which is what I said with our blessing over Torah study. Well, what's interesting is <clears throat> that if you take those words literally, and they're words about God, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, we're saying, blessed are you, Baruch is blessed, are you Atah, Adonai is a name for God. I talked about it last time. Adonai is the most often, there are 6,828 instances of the word Adonai in the Torah. 6,828. I'm going to give you a test later. You have to tell me what they all are. Just kidding. Okay, so, and Adonai is sort of the generic name for God in Jewish tradition, spelled several different ways, um, because there was a name, the, the, the personal name for God, and we don't know how it's pronounced because it was pronounced only by the high priest and only one day a year on Yom Kippur and only in the Holy of Holies, and so we don't really know how it was. And so the rabbis and the people and sages used Adonai as a kind of generic G-O-D. And whenever they want to talk about God, they would use Adonai more than anything else. So here we say this prayer, or all the prayers that anybody says, you light candles, you say blessings over food, whatever you do, you start Baruch Hata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. And I've often thought, how interesting, don't go away. Okay, I'm back with a prayer book. So we have this prayer book filled with blessings, many of which begin Baruch Hata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. And in this prayer book, the Reconstructions prayer book, if you've ever looked at it, or if you want to pay attention from now on, you will notice that every single time the Hebrew says Adonai, the English says something different. Every time. And when the authors, the editors of the Reconstructions Movement created this prayer book, here's what they wrote in the beginning. The most difficult translation issue is the question of God language. The classical translation of these Hebrew letters, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, 
the name of God is Adonai, which literally means Lord, L-O-R-D, which is, in case you hadn't noticed, relatively masculine in its understanding. Lord, there aren't any girls who are lords. There's a bunch of boys who are lords, but there aren't any girls who are lords. So it's instantly a problem if you care about gender-neutral language for God to say Lord all the time. So those who edited the our prayer book, including our own Mickey Bienenfeld, who was on the committee who did this, wrote, a masculine noun that does not work because of its gender, Lord. It doesn't work as living imagery. Furthermore, it's not consistent with a theology that stresses God's imminence, God's intimacy. God made manifest through human action or through nature and through the workings of the human heart to say Lord for God. After a careful review of the responses to an experimental version of this that was sent to everybody and a lengthy discussion among members of the commission, a decision was reached everywhere that these four letters, yud Hey vav Hey, that's normally translated as Adonai, appears in Hebrew, a descriptive name of God appears in the English translation. Several reasons underlie this decision. It solves the problem that many people have in relating to the word Lord. It conveys some of the complexity and freshness of Jewish metaphors that refer to the divine. By explicating the many ways that God's presence is made manifest in Jewish liturgy, this mode of translation encourages every worshiper to become aware of the elements of the divine infused in all the many parts of our lives and the world. The use of these many metaphors is also meant to suggest that no words, no words are adequate for naming or containing the divine. All the images together as if all of the translations together point to a reality beyond themselves. So I went through the prayer book, because I'm your teacher, and I, you don't have this yet, I'll send it out next, and I, I wrote down every single translation of Adonai in the Kolon prayer book, which turned out to be 109 different versions. Here are some of them. For example, every time it said Adonai, which we would traditionally just translate as Lord, because that's literally what it means, the Reconstructionist Prayer Book instead said one of the following, source of light, source of life, sovereign of all worlds, life of all worlds, spirit of the word, the one, the highest one, the righteous one, the great one, the living one, the sublime one, the ineffable, the unseen, the just, the mighty, the beloved, the abundant, the boundless, on and on. You get the idea? All of these are different metaphors for the divine, sacred, gracious, all-knowing, majestic, resplendent, unseen, compassionate, everlasting, wise, 109 of them. I won't read them all, but I'll send them all to you. Well, actually, Rebecca will send them all to you because I'm going to send it to Rebecca, and then she'll send them all to you. But, and you get this sense when you read this, it's really powerful. Imagine Because one of the things that I will tell you when I talk about Jewish mysticism is that the Jewish mystics believed that God's name is all of the names of God strung together, (laughs) that that's God's name. They believe God doesn't have a name. 
because God's God in their mind, this ineffable, you know, undescribable presence in the universe. And so what they, one of the ways they resolved the issue of what's God's name is, they said, if you take all of the Hebrew versions of God's name, because they thought in Hebrew, all of them, and you string them all together, that's gigantically God's name. It's as if we in English took all 109 of the translations of all of these qualities and said, that's God's name. The collection of all of these qualities. Why? It's, um, it's what Mordecai Kaplan taught. Mordecai Kaplan taught God is not a being somewhere, but the qualities that we associate with God are what godliness is that we experience in the world. Harold Kushner once beautifully said, God is like a mirror. The mirror never changes, but everybody who looks in it sees something different. That was uh, Rabbi Harold Schulweis, uh, one of my teachers, actually. Um, and it's the same with God's name. Where do these names come from? So what we have is a couple of God stories I wanted to tell you. See, Kaplan said, when we speak of God's attributes, we should mean not that God has those attributes, but that God is those attributes. So here's a couple of God stories. God story number one, true story, uh, from 1992, because I made a note of it. 1992, one of our preschoolers here at KI was asked, do you think God lives in the temple? And the preschooler said, yes, no. I got this backwards. Preschooler asked the teacher, does God live in the temple? And the teacher said, yes. And the preschooler said, oh, I thought that was the rabbi. That was a three-year-old. Okay, another story. I need more people in the room than the two of you that are here. I need a bigger audience to be laughing. Okay, so another story. Hmm. You probably know this story. It's the story of the the little boy who was uh, told his father he was in the backyard playing catch with God. I'm sure you've all heard this. And his father said, how do you play catch with God? And, of course, the son replied, easy. I just throw the ball up in the air, and God always throws it back to me. And then there was the person who told me, most of these are kid God stories, uh, the grandchild who looked out the window during winter and saw lightning for the first time and said, look, Grandma, God just took my picture. Then there's the true story that happened to me. I was asked to be a guest speaker at the local Methodist church many years ago. Um, They never asked me back after that. But they asked me to be the guest speaker at the Methodist church one Sunday when the Methodist minister was going to be out of town and was a colleague of mine. So I went to speak about whatever I was going to speak about, and I'm sitting up on their pulpit, and uh, the woman who was in charge turned to me with like a stage whisper sitting next to me on the on the pulpit and she said rabbi i have to apologize because we're having trouble with our sound system today 
So when you get up to speak, you're going to have to speak really loudly because the agnostics in this room are terrible. One of my favorite church stories. So um, I know the agnostics in this room are not terrible, but it's certainly part of our experience of questioning God and what we mean by God. <clears throat> and I know I said last time, and I'll say it again, if we have over 7 billion people on the planet, then I would think we have over 7 billion versions of what holiness is and what divinity is and what people understand or mean by God as well. Um, you know, there's that other kind of humorous story of the Sunday school. These are all Sunday school stories of the the teacher who asked, where is God? And the, the student said, I, I know that God lives in the bathroom. And the teacher well, a little taken aback, said, "How do you? Why do you think God lives in the bathroom?" <clears throat> and the student said, "Because every morning, when my father stands outside the bathroom, and he's always saying, my God, are you still in there?'" <clears throat> I don't know about the rest of you, but Judith Ubik is really enjoying this. <laughs> in any event, <clears throat> so, and here's my favorite <clears throat> for today. My favorite is a church sign that I saw. Uh, because it really reflects this whole issue of God not having being a being, but the the qualities that we associate with God being what we really mean by holiness and divinity. There was this church sign that said, "Be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible some people will ever read." And I love that because that really is, in many ways, the Jewish notion of what all these names of God are about. You know, I mentioned that there were over 6,000 versions of Adonai. <clears throat> Not just Adonai, but they're all tagged to something. Adonai Tzvaot is the God of armies. And at different times in our experience, we call upon different qualities or attributes of God, and then we give that God's name. So when the children of Israel in the, in the Torah are about to encounter uh, a hostile enemy, who do they pray to? They pray to Adonai, but not just Adonai. They pray to Adonai Tzavaot. That's what's in the Torah. you know. And uh, later on, when King David, who was known to be this great soldier, says, uh, David and all the troops that were with him set out to bring from there the Ark of God. And they said, Adonai Tzavaot, protect us along our journey, because that's who they prayed to. Or there's Adonai Tzid Kenu, which means the God of of uh, our vindicator. Or there's Adonai Yireh, which is the God, the name that Abraham gave to God at that famous story when he didn't sacrifice his son Isaac, and instead uh, an angel shows up and says, you know, don't hurt the boy, take this animal instead, and we deny the reality of of human sacrifice, and. So Abraham gave God a name and said, God's name is Adonai Yireh, which means God will see. God will see the essence of what's really met, what's really important in us and who we should be. And frankly, that's kind of an interesting name because in my experience, it's certainly my experience with the Home Shalom Project and talking with kids about relationships, everybody wants to be seen. That is what everybody wants. They, they want to be seen and they want to be heard. Everybody wants to have a voice. That's how they know they matter. How do you know you're ma you matter in the world? After all, the only way we judge our own sense of self-worth, unfortunately, to a great degree, is how people react to us. 
the mirror that everybody represents in our lives to us is how we judge ourselves. You know, if I, if the congregation was, the sanctuary was filled with people and I got up to speak and everybody went and did this, you know, what, what would I think? Or everybody, you know, if Rebecca mutes me every three seconds or something, what, what would I think? And, and if you're talking to someone, you know what it's like to talk to someone and, and they're, they're doing this. Yeah. And they're, and you don't feel seen or heard. Because there's something distracting them, their phone, their whatever. Or, you know, we, you know, we, it, it's part of the issue of certainly in the women's movement, the movement for equality between men and women in our world, being seen and being heard is one of the most crucial elements of that whole struggle that those of us who have any consciousness at all struggle with all the time because we know that and women bless you women certainly someone sneezed in here women certainly know that one of the great challenges is that in mixed groups in general men tend to interrupt women all the time in the middle of their speaking all the time in professional settings that's just female realities and often there's a minority of women and a majority of men and women have to work twice as hard to get their voices heard. And I know so many women who tell me about professional experiences where they're in a meeting, they make a suggestion, it goes unacknowledged, some man makes, then makes this, repeats the same suggestion and suddenly it's something important. Suddenly somebody notices it. And most women I know have had that experience in the professional settings of one kind or another. So all of us, you know, that's why this whole subject I thought was interesting the names of God, because it, how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about things that are important to us, the names that we give to qualities that matter to us, the names that people call us. You know, when I do baby namings, I think I said this last time, but when I, every time I do a baby naming, one of the things I share is that this famous Midrash, rabbinic commentary that says each of us has at least three names in our life, the name our parents give us, the name our friends call us, and the name that we earn for ourselves in the world. And then when I'm doing a baby naming, I go on to say something about, you know, how the importance of the name that this child is going to create for herself or for himself in the world is the really the, the name that matters. You know, and which I think is true, but in order to get there and make a name for yourself, you also happen to have to be in a situation where People listen to you, where your name matters, in fact, to them, where you get acknowledged, where you get seen, where you get heard. So the fact that in Jewish tradition we have all of these names for God, and not just a name for God, actually is a reflection of our collective understanding that it's the searching for and the discovery of and the living out of qualities that we think are valuable in our own lives that really matters. That's what we mean in the very beginning. I say this a million times, but I'm saying it again. At the very beginning of the Torah, when we're introduced to human beings and we're introduced with that famous phrase that human beings are made, but Selim Elohim in the image of God. And obviously throughout history, people keep asking, well, what do you mean you're made in the image of God? None of us look alike. You know, so what's the image of God mean? It doesn't mean this is what God looks like. That's a straight line for a joke, I know, but I won't go there. It doesn't mean this is what God looks like, even though there are people who worship themselves as their own creator in life. 
no, we call that narcissism, I think. Um, but Jewish tradition meant we have some of the qualities that we associate with God in human beings. We, just as God is creative, we are creative. Just as God can, is compassionate, we call God Harachaman, one of God's names, the compassionate one. So we are supposed to be compassionate. And this list of 70 names that I shared with everybody, this list is a list of qualities that we are, in many ways, urged, encouraged, and often in Jewish tradition, commanded to emulate in our own lives. This is how God works. And, you know, you've, some of you heard me say this many times because some of you have been around for the same 35 years that I've been here. But I often have said, you know, these are God's hands. These are God's eyes. This is God's mouth. These are God's ears. This is how God works in the world. You know, few of, very few of us have experiences like the figures in the Torah or the Bible where people talk to God and God talks back to them. Very few of us, some people have had that, but very few of us have that experience. That, so how does God work in the world? God works in the world according to Jewish tradition through the qualities we associate with God that we incorporate and then bring into the world. So, um, and that's why this list is a list really of qualities. Uh, what's the most famous psalm of the 150 or so psalms? Probably the 23rd psalm, I would guess. Psalm 23, traditionally translated in the King James Version, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? Leadeth me beside the still waters, etc., etc. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, etc. Many of you have heard it many times. Adonai ro'i, God is my shepherd, is the opening phrase. Adonai ro'i lo echsar. God is my shepherd. I shall not, I, I will lack for nothing because God is my shepherd. So one of God's names is ro'i, shepherd. Well, so what qualities do we associate with shepherd? Someone who takes care of us, someone who protects us, someone who looks out for us, someone to make sure we're fed and taken care of in every way. That's why we want God to be my shepherd, to shepherd me through the valley of the shadow of death, for God's sake. You know, it's like if you want to be shepherded through some place, it's definitely the valley of the shadow of death. You want to get to the other side. And at the other side, there's a feast. You live through it because God is your shepherd. And even though life is dangerous for sheep, after all, they're fragile and vulnerable and they're there are enemies out there. There are predators out there. And if you don't have a good shepherd watching out for the sheep, you know, suddenly one of them disappears because there's a coyote out there or there's whatever. You know, people around here see those kinds of animals and they take their dogs and cats or whatever and bring them inside, right? That's what shepherds are supposed to do. They're supposed to protect you. So when you speak of Adonai Roi, God is, God's name is shepherd, what you're saying is you're expressing your longing to be protected. You're expressing your longing to feel that you are in the hands of God. It's like, why do you think, what is that, Allstate? Is that what it is? You're in good hands with Allstate? Is that what it is? One of those. Yeah, but that's really a God image. You're in good, you're in good hands with Allstate. They have their hands like this. It is the supplication, the supplicant that comes, go to church, the supplicant who comes 
asking for God's forgiveness. When you go to church and you're getting communion, this is what you do when you place the communion in your hands. That's the image. That's the image. God as Roe. And all of these. Adonai Rofecha. God is the Rofe Cholim, the healer of the sick. Everybody gets sick. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic, for God's sake. I like saying that in the middle of this particular class. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic. You know, five million people have died from it, allegedly, in the world. And 750,000, I don't know what we've got now in the United States, whatever the number happens to be. And everybody's walking around I'm with anxiety. We have this low-level anxiety. Some people, it's high-level, but we have low-level anxiety with everybody, like probably in the world, but certainly everybody that I know is walking around, you know, literally afraid of other people, human beings, suddenly. Suddenly, everybody's a potential life-threatening person, right? It's like, is that any way to live? No, it's no way to live. It's a bad way to live. It's a bad way for all of us to be living. It's got to be having a really negative impact on our society, and when we look around at all the sort of craziness that's happening out there in the world, and the extreme things that people are doing, you know, like what's the one of the most dangerous professions right now is flight attendant. When did flight attendant become one of the most dangerous professions in the world? You know, suddenly because of the pandemic, being a flight attendant is dangerous. Getting assaulted, they're getting abused. You know, it's like craziness is out there because we have this sense of tremendous vulnerability. And therefore, in Jewish tradition, we associated God's names with that which will calm our vulnerability, that which will speak directly to our fears. Because remember, in earlier times, I was talking today with someone who grew up with uh, six brothers and sisters. It's unusual in today's world to have six brothers and sisters. It didn't used to be unusual you know, my wife's father was one of eight brothers and sisters. That was quite normal in his time in his community. People had lots of kids. Well, one of the reasons people had lots of kids was because everybody had kids who died because infant mortality was so high. So you just, you kept, and also there wasn't birth control. That was the other good reason. Lots of kids going on and everybody experienced profound vulnerability all the time. So you think about these names, which are thousands of years old, all these Torah names for God, literally more than 3,000 years ago, we had articulated all these different names for God. And what were the names? They were names that we could cling on to, to address our own fears, our own anxieties, and our own real life experiences. One of which is everybody gets sick. And if you're lucky, you get better after you get sick because we are self-healing organisms fundamentally, but not always. So God is seen as Rofe, healer. Rofe Cholim, healer of the sick, because that's the ultimate healer, because we have this power. And we are godlike in that we are also healers. We heal ourselves every day, and we turn to healers, other human beings who are healers, when we get sick, to heal us. And to be, again, God's hands, God's ears, God's eyes, God's mouth to help us to do what God would do if God showed up as a being somewhere, as a healer, right? So, one of my favorite names for God, I think it's number 63 on my list, I don't know where it is, no, it's number 37, is Hamakom. Hamakom literally means the place. I've always loved this one, 
in part because I love the story of where it comes from, which, uh, as you know, many of you, is the story of Jacob. I mentioned it, I think, last time, too. That Jacob, when he's running away from his brother Esau, because he was not the nicest of young men, and stole his brother Esau's blessings from their father Isaac. And uh, when Esau came in and discovered that Jacob had stolen all of his blessings, he, uh, in anger, turned to Jacob and said, as soon as our father dies, I'm killing you. So uh, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, said, I think you should leave, honey. This would be a good time to leave before your brother kills you. So I want you to go and go to my family um, and hang out there for a while until his, uh, his anger is assuaged. And so Jacob, in the middle of the night, runs away. And as you know the story from Genesis, he flees in the middle of the night. He's in the middle of the wilderness, all alone. He goes to sleep, puts a pillow under a rock as a pillow, and he has this dream. And the dream is this famous ladder where there's angels going up and angels going down. And there's lots of Midrash and Rubenic stories about that dream, which I won't go into at the moment. Um, but when he wakes up, and God makes a promise in the dream that, you know, I'll take care of you and I'll protect you and don't worry about it. And uh, and Jacob says, well, you know, if you protect me, if you do that, then, uh, you know, I will be yours forever. And my, and my descendants will all be your special people. And Jacob wakes up and he says this famous phrase about an uh, entire book was written about this phrase by by Rabbi Larry Kushner. And the phrase is, Yesh Adonai b'makom hazeh v'anochi lo yadati in Hebrew. It's God was in this place, and I didn't know it. It's always been one of my top five sentences in the entire Torah. Yesh Adonai b'makom hazeva anochi lo yadati. God is in this place, and I didn't know it. Because it speaks to all of us. It speaks to all of our experiences of sudden enlightenment, sudden aha moments, sudden light bulbs going on, sudden discovery of something meaningful, profound, a relationship, a moment, a scene, a vision, uh, where we go, oh, and we see something beyond the self. We something perhaps that we think is literally miraculous about the world in which we live. You know, I think it's a miracle that I live in Pacific Palisades and I can drive down to Mescal and turn on Pacific Coast Highway and suddenly I'm looking at the ocean. And, you know, there's a there's a couple of traditional blessings when you see the ocean in in Hebrew. One of them is Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam She'asat Hayam HaGadol. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, who created the great sea. And one of them is Rukah Aretz Al Hamayim, which means you thank God for stretching the land to the water. It's a little awkward in English. Rukah Aretz Al Hamayim, but uh, remember those horrific scenes of the tsunami and where was the, the last horrible tsunami? Was it in like Thailand or someplace where the, years ago where there was that horrific uh, tsunami that killed, you know, all, huge numbers of people. And there was that horrible picture of some guy because the way that tsunami starts is all the water recedes into the ocean before it comes flooding this way, and there was this horrible picture that I never got out of my mind of some guy, a person, walking out because it, it, looking at the, the miracle of the ocean 
receding, and he walked out and walked out because he could walk out way farther beyond the shoreline used to be. And then, of course, the tsunami came, and that was the end of that. But and and I, I remember that every time I say that blessing, which is part of the traditional morning blessings, and I say it every day. We thank God, who stretched the land to the sea, to the ocean, to the to the water, as if God, this this consciousness, said, "Oh, I guess I can't let the water just overrun all the earth, so we have to stretch the land so that it stops the water right here at the shoreline." And I have this picture every time I drive down PCH of someone stretching the land just how to hold the water where, right where it is. Because if it didn't, I'm in the Palisades after all. We'd be, I'd be swimming. So, you know, the water's got to stay there. The land's got to stay where it is. And to see something as everyday and ordinary as the sand and the sea as a miracle is what that blessing represents. To say, Baruch bless God for stretching the land to hold just to, just to where the water is. Just right there. Isn't that amazing? It just goes far enough so that there's a shore. That's how they thought. I always thought that was brilliant. And every time I drive down Pacific Coast Highway, not only do I love seeing the ocean, that's why I like cruises, because you're on the ocean, but I think of them, how miraculously, how I could look at that simple geographical, geological reality. We have ocean and we have shore and we have mountain and see it as a miracle and see it as a reflection of God's presence on this, in this universe to say God is Rokaha Aretz. God is the stretcher of the land that keeps me safe because without it, I'd be swimming. And when Jewish tradition calls God Hamakom, the place, based on that Jacob story, because Jacob woke up and said, God was in this place, Hamakom, this place, and I didn't know it. They then ask, well, what is God's place? And they answer, the rabbis, the sages of the Jewish tradition of the Talmud say, God's place is wherever you open your eyes and recognize God's presence, that's God's place. That means it's up to us. <laughs> that means our ancestors thought, oh, like I often say, we're meaning makers. We, we decide what something means. Things just are, and then we put a frame around them and say that's what it means. We do that with God. We do that with divinity. We do that with sacredness. We do that with holiness. We do that with how do you separate the everyday, the ordinary, from something that's special and sacred. We do it by our own choice, in our own minds, by saying, ah, that's amazing. That's miraculous. That's a wonder. What's a wonder of the world? We have seven, eight, I don't know how many wonders of the world we have these days. Keep coming up with new wonders of the world. Amazing waterfalls. And I don't know what are the wonders of the world. Things that are natural. There's this famous story of a guy standing on the, on the edge of um, the Grand Canyon and saying to one of the uh, what do they call the people that uh, take you around? Guides, yeah. One of the guides. And the famous story turns to the guide and says, looks at the Grand Canyon for the first time and is amazed and overwhelmed and says, you know, this is incredible. I, you know, I wish I was here when this was made. And the guide said, you are. You are. It's being made right now. 
And all of the miracles, the natural miracles of our world are being made right now. We're living in them. We're living with them. We're screwing up many of them, but we're still living with them. Hopefully we'll have a, our consciousness about climate change and all will help us to start addressing some of these and our impact. Look at our impact. Are we not God-like that we can destroy the world? We are the destroyers of the world the same way we are creators of things, you know? So the fact that we can have that impact on the world by what we do and the choices we make is another reflection of what our ancestors meant by saying Selim Elohim, made in the image of God. And really what they meant was the simple thing that, again, I've said a thousand times from every pulpit, which is that what we say matters and what we do matters and who we are matters. That's the godliness of our being that we have an impact on the world. That, you know, and when we work with teens and we work with kids, what we want them to do is recognize that they have some agency in the world, that what they say does matter, you know, and that what they do does matter in the world for good or for bad, you know, and that their voice does matter. So that's part of what Hamakom is such a powerful name for God, the place to me, because it always reminds me that God is there in potential. Holiness is there. Sacredness is everywhere, in every relationship, possibly, but not inevitably. You know, we have this notion in Jewish life of the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Ra, the good and evil inclination, which is our version of what lots of other cultures have, that sort of duality of human beings, because we all experience that. You know, it's like there's little pictures of the angel and devil on your shoulders and things like that. You know, are we following our better angels or are we following our worser angels? Uh, what, what, are, what are the choices that we're making? Do we give in to, you know, temptations that we feel bad about afterwards or do we not? You know, all those kinds of things. Well, that's the human condition after all. The human condition is, this is the human condition up and down and up and down. The human condition is that we grow and we learn and we make mistakes. We only learn from mistakes after all. Um, I had a book proposal. I was going to write a book called failure way to success, but I never did. But uh, <clears throat> because that's the way everybody, I mean, you know, it's not my invention. Everybody that you ever read, every successful person failed their way to success. That's the human condition. You know, if you don't try something, you don't fail something, you don't fall down something, you don't know how to do you don't know how to get up. It's like, you know, the best metaphor is learning how to ride a bike, I guess. That's the metaphor everybody uses. Nobody just gets on a bike and rides it. You get on a bike and you fall down. You know, you, you get on a bike and hopefully you, you got someone there who walks along with you and keeps you stable and so you can do it on your own. But inevitably you fall down and then you get up and you fall down. Or it's like a baby, toddlers trying to walk. It's even a better metaphor because everybody's experienced that. You watch little short kids, little toddlers trying to learning how to walk and you know they're going to go... And they collapse, right? Because they don't know how to do it yet. And they get up and they try to look. Fortunately, they're really close to the ground, so they don't get hurt when they do it. But they fall down, they get up, they fall down. What if they fell down and said, oh, okay, I failed, that's it. And they never got up again. And they never learned to walk, right? I mean, but we all walk. And we all walk because we don't, because built into the human body, built into the human being, before you learn to be afraid of mistakes, is that you just try things until you get it right. 
That's what babies do. We get that sort of bludgeoned out of us as we go to school and suddenly learn that you're not supposed to make mistakes. And so then we get anxious about making mistakes and we stop trying. We only do things that we can, we know are going to be the right answer because that's unfortunately part of the negative kind of training that we end up with often instead of encouraging us to just keep failing. You know, it's like the famous Thomas Edison thing. What did he say? I took a thousand times uh, failures to learn how to make the light bulb work or something. And so I didn't fail a thousand times. I just a thousand different ways to get me to the right way. You know, I mean, that's, that's the kind of God is when we talk about names of God, Hamakom is the place where we are supposed to be open to discovering a sense of the divine. And that can be anywhere. And that can be in any relationship. And that's the power of even just one of the 70 names of God. Now, if you have that list in front of you, because some did, there's a whole bunch of them that start with L. L is the Hebrew name, uh, is a generic term for God from the Middle East. And um, there's uh, lots of qualities that are associated with El. El Shaddai is one of God's names. The, and Shaddai is uh, literally uh, one of the Hebrew words that has a cognate that means breasts, the God of breasts. Why would you call God the God of breasts? Well, you can't really answer, so I'll just answer for you. <laughs> because that's a source of nurturing. So it's like El Shaddai, in a sense, is the God of nurturing. The God who, you know, when you are totally helpless as a baby, it's your only source of food, of sustenance, is your mother's breasts. So consequently, to associate God with the most fundamental nurturing that you can ever get, which is a baby suckling on a mother's breast, is an ancient and very powerful image of God as nurturer. Because we want to be nurtured in life, because if you don't have nurture, you die. You know, El Roi, God of the my king, you know, or El, the God who sees me, or El Rachum, the God who is of compassion, or El Hanun, the God of graciousness, or, you know, all of those. Or there are other generic names for God in the Bible that you all know. Like everybody knows the Hebrew word hallelujah. They may not know it's a Hebrew word, but it's a Hebrew word. Hallelujah. Right? Lots of psalms and with hallelujah, and there's lots of songs that are hallelujah. Hallelujah is a, what do you call that? It's um, a word made, a name made up of two words, hallelujah and yah. Because yah is a generic Hebrew name for God. Hallelujah means we celebrate God. We glorify God. Hallelujah. Or anybody that has uh, Yah, any name that has Yah in it, has something to do with a quality associated with God. Hallelujah. Yah, God is my strength. In the book of Exodus, hallelujah. Um, and one of the names for God is Shalom. In the book of Judges, God is called Adonai Shalom the God of Shalom. Shalom becomes, which is interesting, just to show you a little, a, a little insight into Orthodox Judaism. 
since Shalom is one of the names of God, Shalom, of course, means peace, but it doesn't just mean peace as in a, the absence of conflict. Shalom, it comes from the Hebrew word Shalem, which means whole, wholeness. So when the Hebrew picked the, when Hebrew picked the word Shalom to mean peace, what it meant was fulfillment, completion, and wholeness. A society that is whole, where there isn't dissension and people pulling apart, that's what shalom is. It's the sense of all the pieces fitting in together. It's not peace as in no conflict. It's an active, positive joining together of all of the elements of society into a wholeness. So because shalom is a name of God, in the Orthodox tradition, you are forbidden to have a uh, a doormat in front of your door that says shalom, which you would think that's a nice greeting to have in front of your door, your front door. Lots of people have doormats in front of their doors that have names, words on them or greetings on them or some welcome, right? There's welcome mats. So, and you can go out and buy a shalom mat, but if you're an Orthodox Jew, you wouldn't have a shalom mat. Why? Because I just told you, it's one of God's names. You want everybody stepping on God's name? So you don't have shalom in front of your house because everybody who comes in your house is going to step on God's name in order to get there. And any, all of these 70 names of God, if you're an Orthodox Jew, are sacred. These are sacred names. You, you protect them. You don't put them in a place where somebody could diss them in one way or another by stepping on them. And shalom comes in many forms as one of God's names. It's shalom. It says in the book of Judges, Gideon built an altar to God, that is Adonai version, and called it Adonai Shalom. God is shalom. And in the Talmud, Rav Hana said, shalom is one of the names of God. That's where it comes from. Or God is also called Sar Shalom, the eternal Shalom, the or Sar Shalom, the ruler of Shalom, the source of Shalom, Makor Shalom. God is that's one of God's names, Makor Shalom, the source of peace. So if you are back to Makom, as I mentioned, if you are seeing God's name as any place where your own sensitivity experiences a sense of the sacred, then anytime anybody helps to create an environment of shalom, God's presence is there. It's like one of the phrases in the Talmud is, when any two people get together and study words of Torah, the Shekhinah, which is another one of the 70 names of God, God's presence is there. If two people are there and they're not doing that, God's presence might not be there. But if two people are there and they're engaged in Torah, three of them behind me, Torah study, automatically God's, according to the rabbis, because they were Torah studies, studiers, God's presence is there. And part of the whole purpose of all these names is to remind all of us, if you spent time with these names, all of the activities that you do that are reflections of these names of God would be moments when, according to Jewish tradition, you are literally bringing God's presence into being in that moment with that behavior or with that relationship. So, did I tell you the Jackie Gleason story last time? It's very short. Jackie Gleason was asked if he thought he'd make it to heaven. He said, under present rules, perhaps not. But I'm counting on two things. One, God having a sense of humor, 
And two, God grading on the curve. I kind of like that. And um, when I was uh, younger at one point, I was reading a lot of uh, Philip Roth novels. You may remember Philip Roth. Yeah. So one of the things that I wrote down from one of my Philip Roth novels was, this, so this is what he wrote. As a tiny child, I turned from the window out of which I was watching a snowstorm, because he grew up in the East, and I hopefully asked, Mama, do we believe in winter? I love that quote because it reminded me, every time I think about it, of the power of our own belief and our own context. Like, what if Mama said, no, we don't believe in winter? So would you like take your coat off and then run outside because we don't believe in winter? The attitude, attitude is everything. And if you bring an attitude of gratitude to all of your experiences in the world, then you live a life of gratitude. If you bring an attitude of holiness, of reflecting any of these qualities of the 70 names of God, then you experience that sacredness and that divinity in those moments because you bring them to those moments. And that's that was the, I think, one of the great um, insights of our ancestors, of the sages of Jewish tradition. You know, it's like uh, there was an evangelical Christian minister named Harry Emerson Fosdick. He's a great preacher. And he said something once that I wrote down because I thought it was so fabulous. He wrote, I would rather live in a world where my life is surrounded by mystery than live in a world so small that my mind could comprehend it. I love that. I wish I'd said that. I just did. I would rather live in a world where my life is surrounded by mystery than live in a world so small that my mind could comprehend it. And that's what I think about these 70 names of God. And we'll talk about mysticism next time and some other things, but that... You know, being open to the mystery is part of what being a religious person to me means, not which mitzvot you may do or not do. It's your attitude about life. It's your openness to experiencing holiness in the everyday, the everyday miracles that we have and that we experience in our lives, or in the everyday relationships that we have, you know, family and friends and community. Uh, That's where we find the most powerful names of God. So this was an hour class, and my hour is up, and um, thank you all.